I'm going to ask you to turn here tonight to Genesis chapter 4 and the Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. We're going to part three of our series on penal substitution. You'll remember that part one, we gave the title penal substitution and went to the New Testament and showed you how Paul the Apostle taught and preached what penal substitution is. Then in part two, we looked at enemies of the cross, that in our day and generation, there are notable voices and influences that are actual enemies of the cross who preach and teach against penal substitution. What is penal substitution? The word penal means penalty or punishment. Substitution means to be in the place of or to swap places with. And so we see that with penal substitution, when we talk about it in relation to the cross of Jesus, we are actually saying that he took our place on the cross and suffered our punishment. I want to bring you to part three here tonight. And we've laid a foundation. And literally what we're going to do over these weeks or these next messages is lay a foundation in the Old Testament for what we understand about the cross of Jesus Christ. If you remove the Old Testament from the New Testament gospel, you are going to have an awful lot of serious problems. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 3? When the Apostle Paul came to define the basic simplicity of the gospel, This is what he said. This is one of his three points in explaining the gospel. He says how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul is writing in the New Testament and he is saying the basic foundation and heart of the gospel is that is that Christ died for our sins. And he says, according to the scriptures. That word scriptures there, when it's used in the New Testament, is referring to the Old Testament writings from Genesis to Malachi. So Paul here, when he comes to give you the very simple, basic, elementary gospel that we get in the New Testament, he says that Christ died for sins according to the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, when Paul began to preach, there was no New Testament. It was being given by God. It was being formed. It was being written. And so all the apostles, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, all the early churches preached from the Old Testament scriptures. And what Paul is saying is, Christ dying for our sins is in line with all the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, you go to the Old Testament, you're going to find, (coughs) you're going to find a teaching about how Christ actually died for sins. I believe penal substitution that's taught in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, 
you're going to find it all through the Old Testament. You're actually going to see, as we look at the Old Testament, you're going to see time and time and time again, explanations about the teaching of the cross in the New Testament. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read here. Verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had no respect. And Cain was very wrath and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall he, shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which had opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tellest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face I <coughs> shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and I shall it shall come to pass that everyone... <coughs> that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east <coughs> of Eden. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word tonight. Father, we pray for the building of that solid foundation, O oh God, that we might understand your finished work on the cross, that we might see what our Savior, our precious Lord and Christ did upon the cross. Father, we do pray for your grace and your love and your mercy tonight. <clears throat> In Jesus' mighty name, amen. <clears throat> My message tonight is Abel's practice of substitution. Abel's practice of substitution. When you really <clears throat> want to understand the cross, you can go back to the Old Testament 
to its shadows, its types, its prophecies, its promises, its stories, its examples, its pictures, to get a full revelation of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go to the Old Testament, you have the history of 4,000 years of lambs having their blood shed, all leading up to the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do you think the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and God himself commands the shedding of blood all through the Old Testament era, beginning in Genesis and carrying all the way through the Word of God, all through the days of Abel, all through the days of Noah, all through the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and many others. Every time you see a man or a woman of God, they are associated with the slaying of an innocent lamb or a victim in their place for their sin. And so what you had was the Holy Spirit gave us the Old Testament as a manual, a teaching manual with promise, prophecy, and example after example, preparing us to see what was done at Calvary. I actually don't believe you can fully understand the cross in the Gospels unless you understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's commentary, explanation on the New Testament. And so if you want to understand the New Testament, you need to go back and study the old. You need to look at the characters, what they did, what men and women of God did. And if you're going to understand the blood of Jesus on the cross, you need to go back to the Old Testament and begin in Genesis to study the shedding of the blood of a lamb. Because all of that is God's way to teach you, instruct you, and to give you a foundation so that when you come to the New Testament, you have a remarkable insight and full vision to the cross. I believe Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest revelations of what happened on the cross. And yet it's in the Old Testament given by a prophet that was looking forward to the cross. Now we all look back to the death of Jesus Christ. But Old Testament and New Testament are complementary. They are perfectly joined. The old explains the new. The new explains the old. You cannot separate them. As we come here to Genesis 4, and this is a good way for us to begin to explain penal substitution in the Old Testament. I'm going to take you through in the weeks ahead to certain critical, not every example, but certain key chapters and key teachings in the Old Testament. And as we open them up, you're going to see Calvary. You're going to see the blood of the Lamb. You're going to see substitution. You're going to understand what Jesus done for you and for your sin in a greater way as we look at these Old Testament examples. And so let's come to Genesis chapter 4 here tonight. But have your finger in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll get there at some point. When you come to Genesis chapter 4, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. No, you have more than that. You have two twins. They were twin brothers. How do I know that? Eve conceived once and she had two children. Only one conception, but two brothers come forth. 
And so you see that Cain and Abel are twin brothers born at the same time. They're born to the same parents. They are raised and educated in the same home. They have the same instruction, the same teaching. There's no one else at that stage to affect them. This is the very first family. They have the same knowledge, same opportunities, same disadvantages. Both are born sinners. What does it say in Romans chapter 3? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says there wasn't one man born righteous in all of history. Not one. Adam was created. He wasn't born. But what you have here is Cain and Abel are the first children ever born. And they are born sinners. They are born in a crisis. Do you know what their family background was? Their parents had sinned and lost their inheritance. Can you imagine being born into a family that had all the wealth of the universe, all the blessings of God, all the privileges of heaven, and yet you look and go, mommy and daddy lost it all. I am here a pauper, spiritual pauper outside of Eden. I can't walk with God in the cool of the night because of mommy and daddy. And yet it's not innately mommy and daddy's fault. The Bible shows that all men are sinners. I don't think anyone would have done any different because man's nature is such. Both had parents who failed and this was a dysfunctional family. This is what you find in Genesis chapter 4. And yet you have two different kinds of faith. And this is what I'm going to deal with. You have two different kinds of sacrifice or offering that they offer unto God. And you have two different ways that they walk and live out their life. So these two sons born into the same environment with the same biblical teaching, the same spiritual influence, one of them accepts it and the other rejects it. You know what that tells me? You could have all the same privileges around you and yet you could turn your back on it and walk away from it while someone sitting beside you could embrace it all and enjoy it all. It's not that they have a greater advantage in you, but there is a choice. In Genesis chapter 4, we find it focuses the spotlight upon Cain. 17 times in this one chapter, the name Cain is used. And yet in the same chapter, Abel's, who was righteous, he's only mentioned or named eight times. And for those times, it's in being called Cain's brother. So we see the focus is really on Cain in this entire chapter. The Holy Spirit wants us to note Cain, the danger of Cain, the example of Cain. But my message is Abel's practice of substitution. I believe Abel was the first example given to us by God of a righteous man who believes in blood sacrifice, redemption, propitiation, and penal substitution. I believe Abel actually believed that an innocent lamb had to die in his place for his sin in order that he could be forgiven. 
And we're going to see that tonight. But here, first of all, I'm going to show you two different kinds of faith. When you come to the cross and all through the church, I believe that everyone, when you look at the reaction to the cross, you see two different kinds of faith. You either get the faith of Cain or the faith of Abel. All of you sitting in this room either have the faith of Cain or you have the faith of Abel. Both are called faith. You may think, I believe. But yet we're going to see there's a distinction in the faith of Cain and Abel. And you better be sure that you have the faith of Abel and not the faith of Cain. In this chapter, both believe in God. Both spoke to God. God repeatedly speaks to Cain, not just to Abel. Both sacrifice to God, both worship God, both acknowledge God, both worked hard for God, and yet one of them gets rejected and the other gets received. So what's the difference in their faith? If they both hear from God, speak to God, if they both believe in God, why is it that their faith was actually different? It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. When you come to the book of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit begins to teach about all different lives who had faith, who does he begin with? He begins with Abel. Abel is the first example of faith. Abel was a man of faith. Don't just read it as an Old Testament story and pass over it. The New Testament brings us right back to the Old Testament and it notes the faith of Abel. You cannot read Genesis chapter 4 without noticing the faith of Abel. The outstanding mark of Abel is his faith in what he done in Genesis chapter 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than of Cain. And so you begin to see the faith of Abel is different than the faith of Cain. Cain didn't have the faith of Abel because he didn't do what Abel done. If both of them done the same thing, you could say they had the same faith, but they, they radically were different in how that faith manifested. Now, what is faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read that now faith is Faith actually is something. You know, in our generation, people believe faith is blind. You just jump over a wall and hope everything is going to be okay. Or you believe in God. Although you don't, you have all these doubts, you just believe, you just hope that it's all true. And you're going to stake your eternity, even though your heart isn't sure of it. That isn't faith. I want you to understand what real faith is because lots of people call faith something that it isn't. They twist it. They pervert it. They don't understand it. They say, faith, well, I just need to believe something I don't actually believe in. That's hypocrisy. That's a tormenting, terrible thing to try and make yourself believe something that you actually do not believe. That is not faith. But what is faith? It actually says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. 
Do you know what that means? Faith gives substance to your hope. What are you hoping for? See, hope is future. Hope is eternal. Hope is connected to the promises of God. So you're hoping for things. But it says faith gives substance or is the substance of your hope. So this faith gives you substance. That means a foundation to stand on. Real faith gives you a solid ground to stand on in order to have hope about what is yet ahead, what is eternal, what is invisible. So real faith puts your feet on solid ground. It lifts you up out of the mire, the sinking sand, confusion, out of fear and doubts, and it puts you somewhere solid. That's how remarkable faith is. Faith is something. Faith is substance. It is solid. It's not water. It is solid ground. It is rock hard. It is the provision of God. And so faith gives reality to your hope. Faith always has a reason. Listen this carefully. Faith always has a reason for its confidence. Faith isn't blind. Faith builds on facts. Faith has facts. In fact, you can't have faith without facts, without evidence, without reality, without knowledge, without information. You cannot have faith. And so faith is the evidence of things not seen. The evidence. What is faith? It is the evidence. The word evidence means proof or conviction. When you find something and you go, I am so persuaded, that is faith. Faith is a strong, strong conviction. It convinces you. Faith convinces you of things you can't even see. It persuades you. It preserves you and makes you to know and to believe in what is real. Faith demonstrates to you and reveals to you things that are unseen and makes them real. It makes the unseen become visible to you. That's the reality of faith. Do you know what Abel had? And this is in Hebrews chapter 11. When it begins to explain faith is substance. Who's the first person he comes to? Abel. The faith of Abel. And so I have an explanation here of what kind of faith Abel had. Abel had a faith that had substance. I mean, he was building on solid evidence. He had real evidence that convinced him that he could hope for the future. The unseen realm become real to him. He knew God had created all things. He was convinced of God's future promises. And so when you look at the faith of Abel, faith is discerned. And notice this in verse 4. Faith is discerned by its sacrifice. How do I know that you've got the faith of Abel and not the faith of Cain? It's by your view of Calvary or where that faith is actually placed. It says there, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. How do I know what kind of faith Abel had? By his sacrifice. What are you going to give for your sin? What do you think forgives you? What do you think makes you religious? What do you think brings you into a relationship with God? Just ask anybody in our world, why do you think you're going to get to heaven? Why do you think you're righteous? 
Why do you think you're in a friendship with God? Will you please explain that? And as you explain, I know what sort of faith you have. Abel's faith was revealed by the kind of sacrifice that he began to offer. And this is how you see genuine faith. Genuine faith only offers a certain kind of sacrifice. It knows only one sacrifice can make it right with God. I don't believe faith saves a man. I don't believe that. The sacrifice saves a man. It's what you put your faith in. So it's a certain kind of faith. Lots of people have faith. Even the demons in hell believe and tremble. I'm tired. They really believe in God. Why else would you tremble? Haven't you met people scared to die, scared to face God? Oh, yes, they've got faith, but not Abel's faith. You see, Abel's faith offered a certain kind of sacrifice. And the Bible calls it here an excellent sacrifice. The word excellent means the greatest, incomparable, no comparison. And look what it's compared with, Cain. So the faith of Abel is discerned by the kind of sacrifice he offered compared to Cain's sacrifice. See, when you look at Cain's sacrifice, you're looking at a different kind of faith. And see, as I begin looking at this, I can look at any preacher, any church, any individual, and I begin to see a big divide here by what kind of faith they have. A faith that is not focused on and built upon a right sacrifice, the blood of the lamb, is a faulty faith. Any faith that does not see what Christ done on the cross is in serious trouble. But yet we have Abel who offered this more excellent sacrifice. What a sacrifice. And what else does it say? By which, by that sacrifice, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So his faith made him righteous through a certain kind of sacrifice. You can't separate this. You can't have a faith in God that doesn't have the right sacrifice. And if you put faith in the right sacrifice, you are made righteous. This is the gospel in the New Testament. We are made righteous. How was Abel made righteous? Was he born righteous? Was he born sinless? Was he innately so righteous in his deeds that God says you're righteous? Absolutely not. His faith was manifest in that he offered up to God the right sacrifice. And God says, because of this, I count you righteous. The sacrifice he offered made him righteous because God accepted it. And it goes on to say there that he was made righteous and he received witness from God. In other words, God testified, reported, and said he's righteous. This man, Abel, is a righteous man. Look at the faith of Abel. His actual faith brought him before God to offer up the right sacrifice. And so I can test your faith. What sort of faith do you have? Is your faith in the blood of Jesus? Is your faith that you're forgiven, made righteous? that all your sins are removed? Is it based in the blood, in the work of the cross? Do you believe that's the only means of salvation? Do you believe something happened there that radically makes your, your life different, that changes you? You see, that is faith. That was the faith of Abel. 
He offered up the right sacrifice. And so the New Testament reveals the mark of Abel in Genesis 4. He had a real faith. Why? Because of the sacrifice. You know what the sacrifice was? Is a blood sacrifice. But listen to the faith of Cain. Cain was not a heathen. He was not an atheist. He believed in God, talked to God. He offered sacrifice to God. I mean, he sacrificed. He gave his best. He gave what cost him an awful lot of work. And yet he didn't have this kind of faith. So what sort of faith did he have? I believe Cain's faith was presumption. What's the difference between the faith of Abel and Cain's presumptuous faith? This is what presumption is. Presumption is belief without evidence. It has no foundation or substance. It is a blind faith saying, I believe in God. I sacrifice to God, but there's no foundation or evidence for what they are doing. They have a walk of faith with God. They say, I believe, I follow, I give, I worship. I am caught up in religion. I even speak to God. God speaks to me. We have a relationship. I can hear the voice of God. And yet his faith is utter presumption. He hears the real voice of God. He is conscious of the real God of the Bible. The God of Adam and Eve. The God of creation. Oh, he's not believing in Baal. He's not believing in Allah. He is believing in the God of the Bible and saying, I believe in you. I speak to you. I hear you. I offer sacrifices to you. And yet his faith is presumption. Why is that? Because where did his faith lead him? His faith that he had in God, he started to change things. I mean, radically change things. Oh, he said, I serve you. I follow you. I believe in you. But he begins to add, take away and change things. When you see anyone with faith in God who begins to change the gospel, it's presumption. And that faith is not real faith. That is a very, very dangerous faith. And so presumption is to trust, have confidence. I mean, you rest in this, in nothing. Presumption is a faith resting on nothing, sinking sand. It's dangerous. It'll destroy you. The end of it is destruction. And yet you can have a faith that goes, I'm okay. I'm fine. I've got confidence. I believe in all of this. And yet it's a presumption, but it's a blind faith. You're actually heading for destruction. You're going, sure, it'll be okay. I've met lots of people like that. They are fully persuaded. It'll all work out in the end. But your faith is not built on the teaching of God's word, on divine revelation. You see, to have real faith, you need a command or a promise or instruction or an example from God. Faith is obedience. Real faith is an obedient faith. What was Cain's faith? It was a disobedient faith. You know why? He was disobeying God's ordained way. Cain's religion was also dominated by the scene, by his five senses. And this is the mark of all religion in our world today and today's church. They're moved by lights, music, feelings, 
They want a positive message. Don't talk about sin or repentance. Don't be negative. Just tell me everything's going to be okay. They are so affected by music and numbers and atmosphere that they say, surely God is here. How do you know? I know God's here because the word of God's being preached. That's how I know God is here. You could create a lovely worship atmosphere. There could be numbers. Everyone's got feelings. Yes, but what do you believe? Do you see how Cain was caught up in worship, caught up in sacrifice? Don't tell me the false church of this day doesn't sacrifice. It sacrifices more than you bunch, I want to tell you. Today's compromised church that has taken their eyes off Calvary, they sacrifice, they weep, they worship, they're dedicated, they're committed. They give much unto God. But yet that faith can be presumption. Do you know how I know his faith was a presumptuous faith? You see, real faith is God-centered. But presumption is man-centered. Presumption fills you with pride. Whereas real faith humbles you and creates a fear of God. So you tremble in the presence of God. Presumption is trying to force God to do your will. Whereas real faith submits to the will of God. And so you have two different kinds of faith. Cain's faith never brought him to blood sacrifice. He didn't see the need for having a substitute or an animal to die in his place. His faith was such that he said, my good deeds, my offerings are acceptable unto God. And so beginning with these two sons, these two brothers, you have two different kinds of faith. And you know what? One of them is marked by blood substitution, penal substitution or a sacrifice done in their place. Let me bring you to point number two here. <clears throat> two different kinds of sacrifice, two different kinds of faith, two different kinds of sacrifice. Here in these verses in Genesis 4, we read the word offering. Cain brought an offering to God. He came unto God, not the world. Not an idol, not a statue. He came unto the God of the Bible, the God of creation. He brought an offering. Abel also brought an offering. Both of these two boys brought offerings or sacrifices. The word actually means a gift or donation. To offer something up as a gift to that person. In fact, it means a sacrifice. It's cost you something. Do you realize Cain paid a price? He didn't bring a price that didn't cost him, and it was costly. It cost him a lot of labor, a lot of work. But Abel also brought an offering that was costly. Both brought a sacrifice, something that cost them. When they gave it, they could feel the hurt of it. And yet one was accepted, the other was rejected. Faith reveals itself by the sacrifice that you bring to God. Anyone can bring a sacrifice to God. All across the church today, everyone is bringing sacrifices. But is it accepted or is it rejected? Is it real faith or is it presumption? Is it self-centered or is it God-centered? Is it something they have imagined or is it built upon the actual word of God? 
That's what you've got to ask yourself. Let's look at Cain's sacrifice first. Look at verse 3 in Genesis 4. And in the process of time, it came to pass. So there's a certain day, a certain time, a certain set of events happen here. In the process of time. You know, I believe that Cain and Abel grew up in that home. Remember, Adam and Eve had sinned. And then when they sinned, they become ashamed of their nakedness. So they went and hid from the presence of God. When he came walking, he said, Adam, where are you? He had to go searching for Adam. Adam and Eve are hiding. And you know what they done? They created aprons to cover their lower parts. That wasn't sufficient. And so they tried to cover their nakedness. And we know that it was God who come and slew an animal himself. The first blood shed, the first animal ever killed was by God himself for their parents. In other words, they grew up in this home. Here in the testimony, we sinned against God. We lost so much through sin. There is a real serpent, a real devil. There's a real God that you've got to obey. All he said was, don't touch that tree. And he said, I touch that tree. Do you realize the reality they grew up in here in the stories of what actually happened? Of how God slew an animal to cover their nakedness? And so you have it here in the process of time. Cain and Abel grew up in a home where the parents say, only by bloodshedding, only by the sacrifice of a lamb can our nakedness, our shame be covered. God himself, to reconcile us, had to shed the blood of an animal. Only by the shedding of the blood can that happen. But what did Cain's sacrifice look like? Listen, the Cain brought the fruit of the ground as an offering unto the Lord. What did he bring? So he's been raised around a blood religion, hearing about sacrifice, blood. And yet suddenly something happens here. What did he do? He brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. I believe Cain began to think for himself. You see, a time come when he's not an infant in the home anymore. He's not a young boy. He's not a child. He's not a teenager. He's now grown up. Both brothers are growing up and they're going to make their own way in the world. You see, people can grow up in a Christian family, hearing the gospel, hearing what Christ done on the cross. You one day make a decision for yourself and you choose what sacrifice you're going to adhere to. What sort of Christianity, what gospel. All of you in this church have thoroughly heard the gospel. We have an entire, entire series, series after series, defining what faith is, justification by faith, the cross, the blood of Jesus. We have preached the real gospel, but everyone's going to make their decision. Cain actually done that. He grew up in this environment. I believe they grew up around blood shedding and animal sacrifice. Why else would Abel do that? and it be acceptable to God. I don't believe Abel just started doing it. Abel done it because he grew up around it. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, no relationship with God. 
No continuing fellowship with God. It's only by the blood. But Cain brings the fruit of his hands. You see, Cain was living by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. What's the opposite of walking by faith? Walking by sight. So if you find a Christian and they're dominated by what they see, that isn't faith. The eye represents the five senses. And when you get someone, they're hearing, they're feeling, they're smell, those five senses working together, touch, lights, music, atmosphere. Is that how you feel the presence of God? How do you know God's with you tonight? How do you know you're in a right relationship with God? Well, I feel so spiritual tonight. Oh, I wake up in the morning and I feel God's left me. Has he left you? Did you sin? No. Are you convicted of something? No. But I feel he's a million miles away. Be very careful of that. See, I believe Cain lived by the senses, by feelings, by common sense, by worldly wisdom, by presumption. He began to presume. He wasn't living by faith. He was living by presumption. What did he do? He brought of the fruit of the ground. I've got a good idea. It's never happened before. I haven't seen it. I didn't grow up with this. But you know what? I know this God. I worship this God. I believe in this God. I think I can bring the work of my hands. In fact, I think I'll satisfy God. You're in dangerous ground. That's not divine revelation. That's not the teaching of the Bible. And you know what's scary? When as I preach this, you go, this is obvious. This is elementary. This is basic. No, it's not. All across the church of our generation, I've watched the entire church move towards a social gospel, towards a music that is sensual. You discern God's presence by feeling, by sight, by music. It was Victoria when we first met her. Uh, her and her friends, uh, all, all from the same church, they would travel down to the north of England and go through seminars on worship. They were taught about music and tone and atmosphere. And you create that atmosphere of the presence of God. It's all through the church. Just get the piano right and the guitar right and the singing right and you've got God. We've got leaders all through the church who go, I've got a new strategy for evangelism. I've got a new idea how the church should function. Do you know what it is? If it's moving away from the clear written scripture, it's Cain religion. You need to be very careful of this. And so Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. It was his hard work. It was his good works. It was his good ideas. And he chose a sacrifice, an offering to God that he believed God would accept. God's going to be impressed with this. I have worked hard. I am actually pleased and chuffed. I'm very impressed with what I'm offering to God. I believe what I have done, God is going to be very impressed with, very moved by. Do you realize how deadly religion is? The flesh is, the five senses are. It moves you to legalism, to tradition, to deadness. And in our contemporary age, it's all through the church. And so he brought the fruit of the ground, his plants. You know what he had to do 
Remember Adam and Eve sinned and then weeds began to grow. There's the first generation of gardeners. He's got to go out there and dig over the ground. He's got to prepare the ground. He's got to get rid of the weeds. Can you imagine him pulling up all the weeds, sweating, working hard, digging up the soil? He is laboring hard. Do you know in the midst of his hard work, he got an idea. I've got a great idea. God is going to be so impressed with us. I'm going to offer this to God. This will actually be a mark of righteousness in my life. How good I am, how righteous, how wonderful my motives are, all that I have done for God. When you begin to pride yourself on what you have done, you're in a backslidden, deadly position. Because you know, those that do most for God, those who have served the most, actually admit they've done nothing. What did Jesus say in the parable? After you do everything for God, we're unprofitable servants at best. Haven't even begun to do this. And so Cain, because there was something wrong with his faith, notice that. Because there's something wrong with his faith, his whole view of blood sacrifice began to change. Oh yes, I've done that. I've been there. I've worn the t-shirt. I grew up with that. Oh yes, I believe in that. I believe my parents had skin covering and we used to do that. But you know what? I can walk with God. How many sacrifices does God need? Can't we move on to deeper revelation, to more truth, to better realms of, of truth? Those who get stuck at blood atonement, you're very narrow. You don't understand the depths of God. Cain began to expand his mind. He was probably a thinker and an intelligent man. He created his own system of worship. He, he thought he could improve on what God had taught Adam and Eve and what his brother Abel was doing. Blood sacrifice, shedding of a blood. He thought he could improve on this. And so he changed it, improvised, and he began to interpret what God had given. See, faith sticks with God. Faith doesn't say, that's an old-fashioned gospel. We need to update the gospel. Real faith would never do that. That's how you tell real faith. Real faith stays with the blood, with the cross, with substitution. Real faith knows that but for Calvary, the wrath of God would descend on me. I'm a child of wrath by nature. I was born a sinner. I was lost because of Adam's sin. I don't try to change God's remedy and answer. In verse 5 it says, But unto Cain, unto his offering, God had no respect. The word respect means he would not even look at it. He wouldn't even spend time over it. He wouldn't even acknowledge it. So here's Cain bringing all of the works of his hands, all of the labor, all of his time and saying, this is the best sacrifice I can give to you. And God says, I won't even look at it. it it's unacceptable. Did I tell you to do that? Is this what I have commanded you? Did your parents walk in this to get reconciled to me? What was my answer to your parents? The shedding of blood, the death of an animal. You think you can improve on that? You think there's a deeper place to walk with me than that? You think you can be forgiven without the shedding of blood? Like these new teachers in the church. 
How dangerous. Cain rejected blood sacrifice and he replaced it with good works and the labor of his own hands. I've seen this all through church. I've traced it in church history. I see it in our own generation. Do you know those who minimize the blood? They don't like talking about blood. They don't like blood shedding. Hey, there's nothing nice about Calvary. Christ was marred more than any man. His beard was plucked. You couldn't even recognize him. He hung naked on a cross. He was ashamed. Men mocked him and ridiculed him, said, Fear God, come down off that cross. Even the thieves initially both ridiculed him. There's nothing nice about the cross. Darkness descended for three hours. It was a tragic, terrible time. And yet what do we have? We've got Cain rejecting, changing. It was a worship of the true God. Listen to this. Cain's religion was the worship of the true God. But not according to the word of God. It was a bloodless gospel, but it was still a gospel. This reveals that Cain did not have the real spirit of God. He couldn't have had. He wasn't taught of the spirit of God. He begins to change things. And you know what? All across the church, the social gospel, we care about the poor. It's a radical movement across the church. Look at those movements that emphasize good deeds, good works. Doesn't it sound so right? We feed the poor. We feed the hungry. We, we'll clothe the poor. We, we're a charity organization. We believe in social justice for everybody. I hate that term, social justice. You know, that's changing the righteousness of God into justice of you getting angry about things not getting done in our world. All these movements in the modern church, social justice, standing for feminism, racial issues, most of that is a departure from the blood of Jesus Christ. When you take your eyes off Calvary, you get caught up in a social gospel. You become very religious, very sacrificial. I'm on a crusade. I'm going to solve the problems of our world. I'm going to do it for God. God, I am serving you. I care about the poor. I care about women. I care about children. Do you know what? When that moves you away from blood atonement, you have no gospel. You're, you're an apostate. And you know in all those movements, do you know what's interesting? They've all departed from the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't know what true salvation is. They deny the wrath of God. They don't preach repentance for sin. They believe in morality. It's a Cain religion. And so Cain creates his own bloodless religion. Sacrifice, hard work, religiosity. He continued to pray. He heard God's audible voice, but he created his own way of worship. Any kind of worship, evangelism, preaching, church life, or acceptance with God that's not in line with this book is Cain religion. And you have the warning here in Genesis chapter four. Cain's religion was dominated by the seen realm, those five senses. Listen to what Jude says. 
There be they who separate themselves. There's those who sneak into the church, who are enemies of the cross. They separate themselves. This 2,000 years ago, he's writing that. To separate them means, it's talking about a bone in the body being disjointed from the body. They separate themselves. So Judah's talking about these false ones who come into the church. They separate themselves from the real body of Christ. Secondly, he says they're sensual. The word sensual is talking about the senses. They are sensitive, emotional, soulish, devilish. They reject the word of God. And the third thing he says about them, they have not the spirit. They separate themselves. They're sensual and they have not the spirit. Lots of people who are sensual think they have the spirit. You know what Cain was? He separated himself from his entire family. He actually went out from among all of them and real blood religion. What about Abel's sacrifice? You see it in chapter four, verse four. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And so you see right at the beginning, here is righteous Abel who had a real faith. What does he do? He brings the firstlings of his flock. What was he? He was a shepherd. He, he kept or looked after an entire flock of sheep. So you're not going to say, see literally in the Bible, the first time a man, a human, sheds the blood of an animal. What is the animal? It is a lamb. It is a sheep. The very first animal we see killed in the Bible by a man. Remember previously it was God. No doubt Adam and Eve did this through the ages. Why is Abel doing this? He hasn't created this. He hasn't thought this up. His forgiveness has to be the same as Adam and Eve's. The same basis. It has to come from God. Why is Abel doing this? He has faith to offer the right sacrifice. How can you have faith if it's not obedience? And so we know that why did Abel bring the firstlings of the flock? It was because it was divine revelation from God. It was taught by God. His parents actually practiced this. This is the only means of acceptance with God is a sacrifice. And it says he brought the firstlings. That means the first, not the second, not the third. You know what? He gave God the first the best. He gave God the very best that he could. And you know what? It was in line with God's will, God's plan, God's purpose. You know what I believe Abel had? He had a sense of need. He realized he was born a sinner. He realized he had a sense of personal responsibility for his own sin. He wasn't blaming his parents for his condition. He realized he was a sinner separate from God. That God was righteous and holy, but God was also merciful. So what did he do? He took the firstlings, the very first lambs, and he brings it as an offering to God. And he actually gives the fat of it, it says. You know what the fat is? It's the best part of that lamb. That's what he gave unto God. And he said, it's not for me to eat. It's not a meal for me. You remember up until the flood, they didn't eat meat. Do you remember that? That means from Abel all the way through to Noah at the flood. 
Sacrifice was being carried on for millennia. And it wasn't for food. It wasn't for eating. What was it for? It was blood sacrifice. And so you have Abel here. He brought lambs. He brought sheep as a sacrifice. What does the lamb look back to? It looks to Christ. As he brought that lamb, it was like a prophecy. It was a sermon. It was a type, a picture. His faith was looking forward towards Jesus Christ. And so man is saved by faith in Christ alone through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know what this lamb was? As he took that lamb out and sacrificed that lamb, that lamb has taken his place. It's going to suffer in his place. Some people say they can't find penal substitution in the Bible. Then you're of Cain. You're blind. You've been deceived. Do you realize penal substitution begins in Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, then Genesis chapter 4. It goes through to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all the way through to the New Testament. You don't find God's people not shedding the blood of an innocent animal. You know why? There's no forgiveness without the shedding of, of blood. And so here's Abel coming and sacrificing and saying, this animal has taken my place. It's for sin. It's to be in a relationship with God. It's to be righteous. Was Hebrews 11 say? It made him righteous, perfectly righteous. Do you realize on this day, as he offered up the blood of a lamb, the sacrifice, the death of a lamb, he was made perfectly righteous. Do you realize the animal dies? The life of the animal dies. It comes to the end. It bears the penalty of sin. And he stands there. He is righteous. His faith actually looked through the corridors of time and could see afar off Jesus Christ dying for him. It was a picture, a type, a shadow. This sacrifice made him righteous outwardly and inwardly. And the Lord says the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Saints of God, the Bible begins with penal substitution. The, the sinner is made righteous right there. Right in front of this blood sacrifice. He is made righteous. His faith is manifest. I'm bringing a sacrifice. I'm shedding blood. I'm doing what God has said. What God has said with my parents and done with my parents and will do through all of the ages. You can't even approach God unless there's a substitute. You can't do it. God will not accept you. No matter how morally good you are, religious, on a crusade for good deeds, God doesn't accept that. It's got to be the blood of a lamb. This is real religion, real Christianity. And so it said God respected his offering. God looked at it, stared at it, studied it, accepted it, was pleased with it, happy with it. Third and finally, so you've got two different kinds of faith, two different kinds of sacrifice. Third of all, two different kinds of ways. When you find someone who has real faith, who has stood in that place of bloodshedding and been made perfectly righteous because there is a lamb being slain in your place 
And remember what John the Baptist said. When Jesus appeared and he points a finger and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You know what he's saying? Every lamb for 4,000 years was pointing towards him. 4,000 years of lambs being, having their blood shed. This is the Lamb of God. All of those lambs from Abel all the way through. That wasn't paganism. That wasn't cultural religion. This is God's religion. And he takes 4,000 years to teach Israel and to teach us 4,000 years that we can look at Genesis 4 and see a man born a sinner of Adam and Eve's race. And yet he needs to be made righteous. How? By the offering of the right sacrifice. It's got to be blood. It's got to be innocent. It's got to be the best. It's got to be the firstlings. It's got to be according to my word and my will. But thirdly, you have two different kinds of ways. Listen to what it says in Jude, verse 4 in the New Testament. For there are some certain men crept in unawares. Remember what we dealt with in part two. Talking about the church between 70 and 80 AD at the end of the first century. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus Christ. He, he was born to Joseph and Mary. He's one of the half-brothers. And here he is writing, now in his day and generation, there are certain men's crept in unawares. Remember what that means? Sideways, sneaking in. They come in and sit down. They make you believe. Oh, I'm a king. We're in the same family. We're brothers. We grew up around the same religion. We believe in the same God. We talk to the same God. We are the same. Exactly the same. They crept in unawares. Ungodly men turning the grace of God. Changing the grace of God. That's what these men do. They start to change the message of the gospel. You know when men do that? Either they change grace and say, God understands your sin. And make grace something light. Or they change grace into law and legalism. Going either way. Anyone who changes the gospel message, you better be sure they've crept in unawares. You ought to be going, who are you? What do you mean? Sure you know me. No, who are you? Brother Keith, you've known me for five years. No, you're changing this gospel. Who are you? Who are you of? Sure, I sat in this church. I've listened to your teaching. I've known you. Uh-uh. I don't know you. If you're willing to change this gospel, I sure didn't see something about you that I'm beginning to see. You crept in unawares. You were like a liar and a thief in the church of God. You're in the real church and you think you can change this, add to it or take away. You know what? You're in the wrong place. You're a king. That's what you are. It goes on in Jude, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness or freedom to sin and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 11, it goes on to explain some of the, those who are doing this. In Jude's day in the church, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Do you see what I've just told you? That in the early church before the end of the first century, Jude is saying certain men have come into the church 
began to spread themselves and began to reveal things. And he says, do you know who they really are? They have gone out into the way of Cain. The word way there means a well-trodden path that's been walked many, many times. You know, when you go out in the countryside, you see a pathway and you go, hundreds of people have walked this path before me. You can see the track. You don't walk through all the weeds, do you? When you get out there, you go, there's a pathway. Either foxes left it, dogs or humans. And I walk in that pathway. That's normal. It's a well-worn, pre-used path. And if others have used it, I'm sure it'll be okay. Here's Jude saying, there are those in the church who come in sideways and begin changing the gospel. Who are they? They are those who have gone, followed the way of Cain, the pathway of Cain, the walk of Cain, the lifestyle of Cain, the doctrine of Cain, the practice of Cain. There's a well-worn pathway that is called the way of Cain. And you know what? There's many in our generation. They have veered off from blood sacrifice, from Calvary, from penal substitution, from saying the wrath of God was poured out in Christ and on the cross. Jesus suffered in my place. His blood atones for my sin. And they begin veering onto the pathway of Cain. What was Cain's pathway? It was a bloodless pathway. I actually believe this was a movement in the early church. It wasn't one person in a church. It was a movement that began to move into the apostolic churches under good leadership. And it started to come in. These were men who were very religious. They spoke to God. They believed in God. They were raised up under the gospel, maybe from children. They heard the apostles. They had the letters of the New Testament. And yet they veer off into a bloodless gospel. They began to invent morality, good deeds, bringing your best to God. Why not give your gifts to God? God doesn't want your gifts. Can I tell you that? God, God wants you to give yourself. He's not an, I've got a beautiful gift I want to give to God and he's going to use me with this. He's not really interested in your gift. Oh, I can sing so well. I can play music so well. I could do so much. God, I'm going to give you that. And you think God's impressed with that. I'll give you all my money. Maybe God's not interested in your money. There's very few people who give away all their money. But I'm telling you, there are people in the world who do give their money. And they think, God thinks better of me for that. He certainly thinks nothing of the person who doesn't give him money. But he's not impressed with money. And so in the early church, you had this movement come into the church that rose up. What was it marked by? Hypocrisy, false worship, new ways to be accepted by God. Do you know what God does? God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And what happens to Cain? Cain gets angry. He gets wrathful. He begins to speak to God and saying, what are you doing with me? I can't bear this. He doesn't have repentance. He doesn't believe in taking responsibility. Do you know how many people are in the church? They, when God says, that's not okay, they become self-centered. What about me, me, me? It's all about them. No longer about Christ dying on the cross. 
They think they are a victim. They don't repent of their sins. God says, I've rejected your religion. The word of God rejects your religion. Do they change? You know what God was doing? He was given opportunity to repentance. Only the blood of Jesus, only a substitute, only him suffering the wrath of God for you, only him taking your place. That's the reality. That's where the power is. What do these people do? They go off into inner healing and delivering and counseling and going off into all sorts of psychology in the church. Well, I just need better self-esteem and I'll be okay. And so they say, I'm going to speak to myself in the mirror and say, aren't you beautiful? You're so wonderful. Parents begin to raise up their children and they don't teach them. We're all born sinners in need of Christ, in need of forgiveness. You begin to teach you're good, you're nice, you're kind. They think if they surround their child with that, the child grows up righteous. Oh, how dangerous they are. In fact, Cain gets so angry over all of this that it drives him in a certain direction. Where does it drive him? To hate the religion of Abel. Let me just finish here with this. I've got so much to say about this Cain religion and this Abel religion, but I'm just barely glad I can preach tonight. But let me finish with this. You actually have as a part of the way, the pathway, as soon as you depart from Calvary and you say, I believe God can forgive you without blood atonement. That ought to alarm you. There are those rising up in the church right now who call themselves born again, Bible-believing Christians who think God can forgive you. He doesn't need blood. Do you realize how dangerous that is? How anti-biblical that is? They're rising up and saying, God loves us. He doesn't need blood. Christ wasn't our substitute or he didn't bear the wrath of God. Then what did he do on the cross exactly? If he wasn't taking my place as a sinner, bearing my sin and the consequence my sin, then what was he doing on the cross? See, it's so dangerous. When you begin to change this, you know what you begin to do is attack the truth every single time. You can't just create a Cain religion and leave the real alone. As soon as you depart, you've got to attack penal substitution. You've got to attack it to justify your own crusade for the social justice of our generation. Next in these verses in Genesis 4, you have something tragic. I call this the ecumenical strategy of Cain religion. And there's four steps to it. Because I believe ecumenism in our world today You know what ecumenism, everything joins together. What is the ecumenical movement? It was birthed by Rockefeller and Carnegie. They poured millions and billions into creating it at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. It wasn't a church movement. It was created by money men who actually began pouring their money into Bible schools and they began to change the gospel. We don't believe in blood atonement, regeneration, the authority of scripture. And they got inside the Bible schools and began to educate the new ministers going out to born again churches. And first, 
The ministers went out and didn't tell anybody. Their confidence in the Bible was undermined. They'd begin to change their idea of the gospel. They went to churches where people were born again. Here comes the new pastor and the gospel begins to change. He's after your children. He'll teach a new generation rising up. Why do you think Rockefeller and Carnegie would do that? It was inspired of the devil. The devil was behind it because the devil hates blood religion. The ecumenical movement rose up from 1907 over the following century and began to spread out across our world. It had billions behind it. It then began to capture Bible schools, denominations, churches, key leaders who become part of Cain's religion. All that began in Genesis chapter 4. And now you have two different kinds of Christianity. That kind of Christianity isn't our Christianity. See, the ecumenical movement, what's its strategy? I find it here. Watch it carefully. Four things that Cain does. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. To talk, nothing wrong with talking, is there? This is Cain who's changed. He is now angry. His sacrifice isn't accepted. He has improvised the gospel. He doesn't believe in blood atonement anymore. He has talked to God and told God what he thinks. But God isn't having it. So what does he do? His eyes turn on Abel, his brother. The false ecumenical movement of the past century emphasized dialogue between churches. You Catholics, sit down with us Pentecostals and let's talk about how we differ and come to understand each other. Do you know the Catholic Church joined the ecumenical movement in 1964? It was changed into the biggest ecumenical movement in the world. Before that, all the popes rejected it. Said, we're, not gonna, we're Catholics. We're not going to join with the Protestants and all the other religions. Suddenly from 1964, the Catholic Church changes what, what do they start doing? Dialoguing with Catholics, Anglicans, Orthodox, Protestants, Evangelicals. And they begin building a mass ecumenical movement. There's nothing wrong with talking, is there? We're just doing it as brothers. We're all brothers. We all love God. We all talk to God. Yes, we worship differently. Our sacrifice is different. We reject what you do, but we can dialogue so Cain begins to dialogue with his brother. What a dangerous thing. The second thing says, and it came to pass. In other words, they talked for a time. He didn't move to the next step immediately. Let's just talk. Let's just fellowship. Let's just communicate together. This is what Cain religion does. It begins by dialoguing. Let's talk about our differences. You know, you're not meant to do that. An apostate heresy False teachers, you need to rebuke them. You need to separate yourself from them. You turn them off. You don't dialogue with them. Yes, talk to them and say, you need to repent. If you don't repent and come back to the blood, you're lost. If you don't come back to salvation by faith in the blood alone, in Christ alone, you are lost. There's nothing else to talk about. I don't need to learn where we're different and come to understand Catholicism or the other religions of the world, or Islam. But dialogue does that. The second step, it came to pass when they were in the field. It moves from talk to work. 
Now what are they doing? They're working in the field together. Let's just work together. Let's pray together. Let's evangelize together. Let's have a worship meeting together. I know we have differences, but let's set aside because we all love God. So Cain moves him from dialogue, talking to now working together. What's the third thing? It says Cain rose up against his brother. Now you're seeing the real Cain. So he gets you to talk. He gets you to work together. Unity, unity, unity. And suddenly within that unity, say there's some things about your religion I don't like. There's some things we differ on. Now I'm not going to change, but you need to change. Isn't that the church of our generation? You need to change. You're wrong, but you need to accept what we are. You need to be tolerant. You need to join with us, but you need to change to be a part of that. It says that he rose up against his brother Abel. And fourth of all, he slew him. The ecumenical, bloodless Christianity of this hour hates our Christianity. It hates the real message of the gospel. It begins with dialogue, moves to working together. Then they begin to point out what's wrong with us and saying, we are against what you believe. You're too militant. You're too extreme. You're a fundamentalist. You're a radical. You're a Bible thumper. You need to ease off a bit. Hold on, what are you doing? You're radically opposing the truth of God. I I don't have a choice about this. This is biblical truth. Substitution, Christ dying in my place, his blood being shed. There's no discussion about this doctrine. This doctrine was given to Abel. Abel was blessed in it. And what do you have? You have the death of Abel. And you have Cain, an angry, bitter, hateful man in his heart. You know, mere Cain religion leaves your heart unchanged. You're angry in your heart against your brother. How can you do that if you've experienced blood religion? How can you hate your brother? Read 1 John. Go and read 1 John and you begin to see that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. You can't hate your brother and yet love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a contradiction. If you hate your brother, you're of the devil. You're still in darkness. Read 1 John. It says all of this. And so we begin to see what Cain religion actually is. It murders his brother. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and slew his brother. And why slew he him? Because his own works were evil. And his brothers were righteous. What works were evil? Your sacrifice. Your morality. You replaced blood sacrifice with your crusade for social enhancement. Social education. Social justice. You become militant in that. Do you know what it is? It's evil. The new social gospel is an evil gospel. And I'm telling you, people involved in it would be shocked to hear me say that. They say, we're moral, we're nice, we're kind, we're thinking about people. No, you've replaced the real gospel. You're against the real gospel. And oh, how dangerous that is. Jesus talks about Abel. And he talks about from the blood 
of righteous Abel all the way through the ages. You know what he's actually saying about Abel? Abel was a prophet. Abel was a preacher. Abel was a martyr. Abel actually suffered for the real faith. He laid down his life for the real gospel. And he was one of the great men of the Bible, a man of faith, a man of blood sacrifice, a man who obeyed God, a man who followed God, a man who said, I see that it takes a substitute to make me right with God. Saints of God, I'm only beginning. This is Genesis 4 in an obscure place that I'm showing you. Penal substitution was there at the very, in the very first family, in the very first chapters of the Bible, in the very first record that we have of how to be accepted by God. You have central is penal substitution, a blood sacrifice, a lamb suffering in your place. And you have the rising up of another religion who claims to serve the same God, but says we don't believe in that. I want to warn you that we live in an hour of deception, of confusion. Stay at Calvary. Stay with the blood of Jesus because it's by faith in his blood that you're made righteous, that you're made perfect before God, that you're accepted before God, that you can pray, worship, walk with God. This is what we preach is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the word of God here tonight. Father, that you keep us in the way of Abel. Father, I do pray this well-worn path that Abel walked, that Abraham walked, that Noah walked, David, Moses, men of God, Paul, Peter, James, and John. Lord God, we want to walk this, this way of blood sprinkling, this way of substitution, where we teach, we preach that Christ took our place on the cross, that he bare the iniquities of soul, that he bare all of our sin away and bore the consequence that ought to have come on us. Father, I do pray, protect us and preserve us as a church, O oh God, that we might never depart from the truth of God, that we might always be faithful to the lamb that's seated upon the throne. We love you tonight and we thank you that you forgive us that our righteousness is because of this sacrifice alone in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.